There was a time on earth when in the book of heaven an old account was standing for sins yet unforgiven. My name was at the top and many things below. I went unto the keeper and settled long ago. Long ago, long ago, yes, the old account was settled long ago, and the record's clear today, for he washed my sins away, when the old account was settled long ago. Thus he hath provided for you to enter in, and then if you should live a hundred years below, up there you'll not regret it. You settled long ago, long ago, down on my knees, long ago I settled it all. Yes, the old account was settled long ago, and the record's clear today, for he washed my sins away, when the old account was settled long ago, and the record's clear today, for he washed my sins away when the old account was settled long ago Let's take our Bibles tonight and let's turn to the book of Galatians. The book of Galatians. How many of you have ever bought a product? Be honest now. Bought a product on the strength of the advertising showing the before picture and the after picture. Come on, raise your hands up. Everybody want now. Would you say that it was accurate and that in your case uh, it was truthful advertising? No? Uh, okay. You see, there's, there's another old saying that a picture is worth a thousand words. And these words can be very convincing. The before and the after provides a comparison. If it's truthful... If it's accurate, it's sometimes quite startling, the change that can take place, the before and the after. And that's what we've got tonight. As believers, hopefully there is a startling difference between the before 
and the after. 2 Corinthians chapter 5 is not our text, but 2 Corinthians chapter 5 provides us with a wonderful verse, verse number 17. If any man, what? Be in Christ. He is what? A new creature. What? Old things are passed away. Behold, all things are become what? New. That's it. So tonight we're thinking about the before and the after. And the scripture that is the basis for our study is right there in the first chapter of the book of Galatians. You will recall, as we have been now in the book of Galatians for several weeks, that Paul is writing by inspiration to the churches of Galatia, which is a region in what is now modern-day Turkey. There were churches established in southern Galatia, and these are the churches, perhaps, that are in view as he writes. And uh, he is writing on the occasion of the confusion that has taken place because some folks that are known as Judaizers have gone to these Gentiles and said, Essentially, you've got to become a Jew and follow ceremonial law before you can become a Christian. And that is absolutely 180 degrees diametrically opposed to the teaching of salvation of, of by grace through faith. I didn't do anything to get saved. I don't do anything to stay saved. The getting saved and the staying saved part is all on God's part. He's the one that does that through the finished work of Jesus Christ. Now, there ought to be some evidences of our having been saved. This is called fruit. We need to be fruitful, fruit-bearing Christians. There ought to be some proof. There ought to be some evidence. Because those Judaizers were teaching something that sounded like more than the simplicity of the gospel in Christ, that carries with it in the flesh a sense of being more spiritual or more deep than the simplicity of the gospel. So those that are teaching more sometimes are confused for those who are more spiritual. Those that teach additional things sound to some folks to be more spiritual. And this is, is a trap into which the devil wants us all to fall. He wants us to think that if we have these extra things that somehow we're closer to the truth when in fact it is the simplicity of the gospel. The simplicity of the gospel. All right, we're in Galatians chapter 1, beginning at verse number 10. They were attacking the apostleship, the position of Paul, because he was the one that was championing the idea of just receiving Christ to be saved. All right, here we go. Verse number 10. For do I now persuade men or God, question mark, or do I seek to please men? For if I yet pleased men, I should not be the servant of Christ. Wow, think about that. If the choice is telling the truth and being unpopular or telling a lie and being popular, which do we choose? Paul elects to tell the truth and he's unpopular because of it. He's attacked because of it. But I certify you, brethren, that the gospel which was preached of me is not after man. For I neither received it of man, neither was I taught it, but by the revelation of Jesus Christ. For ye have heard of my conversation in time past 
in the Jews' religion, how that I beyond measure, uh, how that beyond measure I persecuted the church of God and wasted it, and profited in the Jews' religion above many my equals in mine own nation, being more exceedingly zealous of the traditions of my fathers. But when it pleased God, who separated me from my mother's womb and called me by His grace to reveal His Son in me, that I might preach Him among the heathen, immediately I conferred not with flesh and blood. Let's pray. Thank you, Lord, that you've given us something simple and plain and basic and help us to derive tonight the truth that can be applied to our lives. Help us to, uh, to live these principles, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Paul says that if you preach any other gospel, even if an angel comes down and says there's something more, you preach any other gospel than the simplicity that is in Christ, let that person who preaches that false gospel be accursed. Regardless of the source, says so in verses 7 and verse number 9. Those are strong words, very strong words. Now, Layman Strauss, who's one of my heroes now with the Lord, was a great, great writer. I've got a number of his books in my library. Layman Strauss points out that every person who does not love the Lord Jesus Christ will be accursed, but how much more then shall the false teacher suffer at the hands of God's eternal wrath? And he said that back in 1947, before I was even born. He said, everybody who doesn't love the Lord is going to be accursed. But those who are adding to the Scriptures and teaching a false gospel... Think how more, how much more they're going to be accursed. It says in Matthew chapter 7, Beware of false prophets which come to you in sheep's clothing, but inwardly they are ravening wolves. Ye shall know them by their fruits. Do men gather grapes of thorns or figs of thistles? Every tree that bringeth not forth good fruit is hewn down and cast into the fire. Now there are going to be, according to what the Lord Jesus said, recorded by Matthew in chapter 7, there are going to be those that are going to say in that day, Lord, Lord, have we not prophesied? Haven't we preached in your name? And in thy name have cast out devils or demons. In thy name done many wonderful works. And notice the answer. And then will I profess unto them, I never knew you. Not I knew you and then forgot you, but I never knew you. Depart from me, ye that work iniquity. These are the religious... Uh, Hucksters. These, these are the, the religious con men and scammers that you find all across the airwaves. You find them uh, all across uh, this world in various places. Building buildings, calling themselves true churches, calling themselves true ministers and preachers of the gospel. But they're adding something. And anytime you add anything to Jesus, it is a false gospel. Beloved, believe not. Every spirit, John says in 1 John chapter 4. But try or test the spirits, whether they are of God, because many false prophets are gone out into the world. How do we test it? Well, you lay the word of God alongside the teaching of those folks. I told you about uh, the individual that came by a week ago Sunday and gave me literature, sent more literature, and you don't find anything in there about salvation by grace through faith. You don't find anything... Uh, about the gospel at all. It's just about all churches getting together. And of course, what happens in a case like that, you drop so many differences in order to not offend people that may not agree with the Bible that by the time you get done, it doesn't even resemble the truth. But uh, 
We have all kinds of religious activity going on in this world. But if it doesn't begin with salvation simply in and through Jesus Christ, it's wrong. You, if you can't get that right, everything else is going to be wrong. You say, well, now, there's this religious group, and they got nice-looking families. And there's this religious group over here, and they've got, they've got healthy standards. And, and uh, uh, they do nice things. They talk nice. They are nice. They look nice. They got nice music. And, and you go down the line. If you don't start with the simplicity of simply believing on the Lord Jesus Christ to be saved, you're going to mess up. It's going to, go, it's going to go wrong sooner or later. We need to be very careful about that. And don't ever feel inferior or like uh, you ought to stand there on your heels and have to defend something when people say, well, that, it can't be that simple. Just believing on the Lord Jesus Christ, just receiving Him. Well, there's got to be some other things. The second they say that, they start down the wrong path. And they want to look more holy and more spiritual. And they'll take verses out of context. For example, they'll take the verse from 1 John, Without holiness, no man shall see the Lord. And they think that that's by some kind of holiness activity. And you've got holiness groups. And they are Pentecostal or apostolic groups. And they will wear their clothing a certain way. And nothing wrong with being modest. They will, they will require certain activities, certain things. And they're constantly putting a question mark where God puts an exclamation point or period. And they're saying, oh, you know, we, don't, we can't say for a fact, you know, that we are saved, that we've kept it or that we've, we've got it or whatever. And the truth of the matter is, if they can't get it right on the simplicity of salvation in and through Jesus Christ, they're going to get a bunch of other things wrong too. So don't be taken in because they've got nice, appearance, nice things going on, some things that might be correct. You've got to be right on Jesus or you're not going to be right at all. All right, so Paul asks a question, verse 10. He says, for do I now persuade men? All right, do I, do I, do I make a friend of? Am I, am I actively going out to make friends of men with their ideas or do I want to be a friend of God? Well, Abraham was called a friend of God. I want to be a friend of God. I don't, uh, I don't care too much about the rest. Or do I seek to please men? For if I yet please men, I should not be the servant of Christ. He is making a very good, sound argument. He's saying, look at all this controversy that's swirling around me because I'm saying salvation is just simply Christ. And you got these other guys and they're saying, you got to be... You know, got to watch what you eat. You got to watch what you say, what you do in order to be saved. And, and they've got all these extra things. And because they've got those extra things, they're popular and I'm not. And uh, so am I, am I doing this because I want people to like me or am I doing this because I want to be right with God? And that is the question that we always need to ask ourselves. How many times have we as honest, transparent Christians said, why am I doing this? How many times have we looked closely at our motives, what we're trying to do? Am I just trying to please men or, or am I interested in pleasing God? And we start with that. We start with pleasing God. It'd be nice if we could please everybody, but we're not going to please everybody. But start with pleasing God. Start with making God happy. But I certify you, brethren. Now, that's an interesting word. Because they were saying, Paul, you don't have certification. Paul, you don't have, 
you don't have, uh, uh, you don't have the approval. But he's saying, I certify you, brethren, that the gospel which was preached of me is not after man. All right, now, salvation benefits us, saves us, but it doesn't originate with us. Anything that originates with man or out of man is corrupt because we are sinners by nature and by practice. So nothing that we do or that we pretend to add to salvation is going to be right with God. It must come directly from God. We must be led through the Word by the Holy Spirit to do and believe and say as we do. If we do otherwise, we're out there on very, very thin ice. So he said, I didn't receive it of man, neither was I taught it, but by the revelation of Jesus Christ. And we know that he went to the backside of the desert and there had his own little private Bible institute or seminary and God taught him. So there you have it. Paul's critics, it's that old saying about the pot calling the kettle something and it's, that's exactly it. Critics of, of Paul and these false teachers had risen up, gained popularity, gotten a foothold somehow and they were saying that the gospel he was preaching was false. And he's saying, no, 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 you've got it reversed. They're, they're teaching something plus, the gospel plus, plus beyond Jesus. That's what's false. And so they were saying he was not a true minister. And uh, controversy was the result. He sought to please God and not men. And he proclaimed the true gospel, as we see here, that came from the Lord himself. And to back it up, I want you to see, this is it. To back it up, he had a radical change of life. You say, what was that? Look at verse 13. For you have heard of my conversation. All right, this is a manner of life. His lifestyle before in time past in the Jews' religion. Uh, he gives a testimony in Philippians chapter 3. He testifies three times. He gives his testimony in the book of Acts before rulers. And uh, he gives credit where credit is due. He was brought up, he was taught at the feet of Gamaliel, one of the great uh, Jewish masters, one of the great teachers. Paul, it has been claimed by people a lot smarter than I am, that Paul was perhaps the most brilliant Christian who ever lived. That he spoke many languages, that he was greatly educated, and uh, he, was, he was able to comport himself and move in all circles and said, I've become a Jew to the Jews and, a, you know, uh, to the Greek, uh, Greeks I became as the Greeks. And he was able to work among them in such a way, uh, culturally, linguistically, culturally, language-wise, um, uh, and in terms of, of their uh, habits of life, their mannerisms and so on, because he was so brilliant. Now, a modernist, back in the early part of the 20th century, went, a, went around preaching that Paul was this brilliant man, and that's true. But he said, that's how we got these 13 or 14 books of the New Testament, because he was so brilliant. He took his Judaism and he added the philosophy of the Greeks and he put it together and he synchronized and came up with this. But no, Paul did not do that on his own. Paul was a brilliant man. He was a vessel used by God, but he did not originate the gospel. He didn't, he didn't create the truth. He was just the one that God selected that God chose. The other day, Brother Ed sent me a text and he said, uh, I wonder, preacher, if, uh, 
if maybe Saul, before he became Paul, when he was unsaved, if he ever met Jesus during his earthly ministry. And uh, he said, uh, he said, wouldn't that be interesting? And uh, would, would, wouldn't you think that he'd probably get mad and go away and Jesus would say, I got plans for you. I, I said, Ed, that's amazing because you know what? I happen to be one of those that just have a, I have an idea, a speculative idea, what you're saying may be true. The Bible doesn't say it for a fact, but wouldn't it fit that maybe that rich young ruler was actually Saul of Tarsus? It's possible. He says, I've done this and I've done that, and it sounds a whole lot like Paul giving his testimony, doesn't it? I did this, I did that, I did all these other things as a Jew. And Paul said that very same thing, that when he was unsaved, he was doing all those things. And then the scripture says that that after the conversation, the man went away very sorrowful. Jesus said, basically, you know, you need to give up everything and, and follow me. And, and he, gave, and he got, went away sad. And the Bible says that Jesus looked on him and loved him. So that very thing that Ed was talking about may have happened. That may have, we don't know. We don't know if that fellow was Saul or not. But it, but it could fit. It's, it's a possibility. The truth of the matter is, there was a radical change in Paul's life. Being brilliant doesn't get you to heaven. Being religious doesn't get you any, any, any points with God. It doesn't get you any place at all. He says, I, I had this background. That was the old Saul in time past. In the Jews' religion, what did he do? He fasted. He kept the feasts. He, he uh, followed all of the ceremonial law. And then, just to add uh, insult to injury, injury to insult, I guess, uh, he persecuted the church of God and wasted it. Now, we read these words, and as we delve into them, it is very possible that, that he was responsible for the deaths of Christians. We know that they laid the coats at his feet when they stoned Stephen to death, and meaning he took responsibility. He put a stamp of approval on the killing of, uh, of Stephen, who was the first martyr. Uh, we don't know all the terrible things that he did, but his reputation had gone throughout the Christian community and they were afraid of him. So much so, that when he got saved, they didn't know what to make of him. You know, Ananias, for example, uh, who uh, was, was there and baptized uh, Paul when he first was converted on the road to Damascus, he was afraid. He said, Lord, no. And, and he wanted to keep his distance. You read that in the book of Acts. People knew the reputation of Saul of Tarsus. He was the instrument of Judaism to destroy this new group, this sect, they called it, of Christians. And he wasted the church of God. He persecuted and wasted it and profited in the Jews' religion above many my equals in mine own nation. That means he advanced. Now, he was, he was appointed by the Sanhedrin. He was probably a part of the Sanhedrin, which was the ruling elite class. And so he had a position in the nation of Israel. Being more exceedingly zealous of the, of the traditions of my fathers. He calls himself a Pharisee of the Pharisees. That's the, the, the cream of the crop. He's the top as far as keeping those traditions. But Peter writes later on, Peter says, uh, we're not redeemed with silver and gold. We're not, none of those vain, those empty 
uh, things, those traditions of the fathers that, that came before. So Saul becomes Paul. What a, what a transition takes place. What a radical change. He's an arch persecutor who becomes set apart and called by God's grace. Look at this. But when it pleased God, there's a lot about pleasing God in the writings of the Apostle Paul. Pleasing God ought to be our number one design in life. So when it pleased God who separated me from my mother's womb and called me by His grace to reveal His Son in me that I might preach Him among the heathen, immediately I conferred not with flesh and blood. The bottom line here is that he did not get his instructions from any man. He got those instructions from the Lord. That's it. So his transformed life. The greatest proof of the truth of the Word of God is the change that takes place. What a wonderful change in my life has been wrought since Jesus came into my heart. It says in Acts chapter 9, And Saul, yet breathing out threatenings and slaughter against the disciples of the Lord, went unto the high priest, and as he journeyed, uh, it says he came near Damascus, suddenly there was a light that shone round him, and he fell to the earth and he heard a voice. Now, whose voice was that? Why, he said, I'm Jesus, whom thou persecutest. And then he said, It's hard for thee to kick against the pricks. Now, what he's talking about is the ox goad that was used by someone plowing a field. They would have a plow and they would have the reins wrapped around and they would hold an ox goad. And when that ox would, would balk or not go forward, they get poked and they get moving forward. It was motivation, a little bit of pain. So apparently this is a reference to the spiritual conviction when Saul saw the angel-like countenance of Stephen when he was stoned to death, saying, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. And if perhaps he had been present at the time that Jesus Christ was crucified and heard Christ from the cross call on God to forgive those that were crucifying him, if in the course of persecuting and wasting the church, those who were perhaps martyrs or those who were suffering for the cause of Christ, if they did so with calmness and a peace that he didn't know anything about, here's a guy who is the most religious man on earth. He is the most accomplished, has, has gained the most ground religiously of anybody, but he knows, and everybody else in this boat knows, that he didn't have what they had. And some of the folks that he persecuted were so sweet and so peaceful in their persecution. He knew he had to be troubled in here knowing that they were experiencing the grace of God and he had not. God had plans for Saul to become Paul. Set apart, called by God's grace. God's grace is unmerited favor. Later on, particularly in the epistle to the Romans and elsewhere, he speaks of grace. He speaks of grace, of course, extended to all mankind, as he writes to Titus. But the grace of God not only has appeared to all men, but it appeared to Paul individually. God not only has a plan, because 
He's not willing that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance. But he has an individual plan and purpose for each one as well. God sees us as we can be by his grace. And so God saw Saul as he could be by his grace becoming Paul. And this is, this is where God's grace comes in. He's called by the grace of God. And what does his call include? Let me just talk about the call for a moment. The call is not a feeling. There is an increasing sense of its being real when the hand of God is upon you and you get the call of God in your life for service. God calls you to some particular area in which to give Him yourself and to serve Him for His glory. And when that is confirmed by the Spirit inwardly, and we read it in the Scripture, it seems like every passage of Scripture addresses that. It seems like every message and every gospel lesson, every, everything we hear goes that direction. And most, most of the preacher friends that I've run with have had that same kind of experience that I'm describing to you. It's personal on my part because when we know that God calls us, God called me to preach when I was just a young man at, at summer camp. That's why I believe in summer camp. I'd been saved years, a few years before at, uh, at uh, Bible school, summer Bible school, vacation Bible school, and got called to preach at summer camp. And when I said it, it became a growing thing that even though I didn't always live for God, I could never get away from it. I could never escape the call of God. And the call of God became increasingly strong, and I sensed it more and more and more and more. Recently, a, uh, an individual came to us and said, you know, th this is going on. And, and, and uh, I said to the individual, yes, God is calling you. That's a call of God. And uh, this person looked at me, and I said, yes, we knew that. We knew that. It's evident not only to the individual, but it's evident to those around the individual that God's hand is on that person. And so when Saul gets saved, there's a stir because the, the, the public enemy number one, worst case scenario, I mean, biggest nightmare for the church is Saul. And Saul gets saved. Think about that. Under the old Soviet Union, there was working with... Uh, the enemies of Christians working for the communists, a young man by the name of Yuri Kortikov. Yuri Kortikov saw the martyrdom of many people. He raided churches, and one time in particular, there was a baptismal service going on, and they, they swooped down to the river where these folks were being baptized, and, and when he got done, he looked over and there was a body floating in the water. It was the old preacher. He was responsible for his death. He never got that out of his mind, how those people were willing to suffer and die for Jesus Christ. Later on in the Soviet Navy, he was on board one of their ships off the coast of uh, Washington State. And he jumped ship and swam and, and uh, gained asylum in the United States. He became a believer and began to preach. And then almost as suddenly as he appeared on the scene, he preached at Landmark Baptist Temple. He preached, uh, he preached at uh, Thomas Road, I believe. He preached at a number of 
prominent churches throughout the country. Just as soon as he uh, had done a number of those appearances, preaching uh, about the wonderful transformation in his life since Jesus came in and saved him, he disappeared. These things happen. But there was such a transformation, such a change that took place. Such a change that took place. I've told you that at the uh, 50th reunion of my high school graduation, I was able to give a plan of salvation. I was able to pray. I was able to speak. When, when I was walking away, uh, one gal said to me, Whatever happened to you? Whatever happened to you? And I turned and I said, Jesus is what happened to me. And when Jesus Christ comes into your life, there's a transformation. It is the greatest evidence for what the Bible says, the truth of the gospel. All right, so he's saying that God's grace was extended to him so that he would do what? To reveal his son in me. To reveal his son in me. Technically, technically it is only the, the um, perspective of the observer that says that we are behaving like Jesus. Alright, you understand what I'm saying? Because it is not our goal just to be like Jesus. You don't find that in the Word of God. We will end up appearing like Jesus or like followers of Jesus, but our goal is not to imitate Jesus Christ. Our goal is to yield to the Spirit. You understand what I'm saying? Yield to the Spirit of Jesus Christ who lives out through us. That's how Jesus Christ has seen us. It's not by trying very hard to be like Jesus, trying very hard to talk like Jesus, trying very hard to act and look like Jesus. That's not our goal. Our goal is to step away and let Jesus Christ have control of our heart and our life and our words and our thoughts and our deeds and our actions. And that's how we look like Jesus. Not because we tried, but because we let go and let God have His way. Do you understand what I'm saying? I hope you're not confused by what I'm saying. All right. So, to reveal His Son in me does not mean that Paul worked on imitating Jesus Christ, but he allowed the Spirit of Jesus Christ to rule in his heart and his life. That's what we need to do. That I might preach Him, now, not about Him, but preach Him. What's, what's my subject? Jesus, the Lord Jesus Christ, the Son of God. He's my subject, that I might preach Him among the heathen. Now the word heathen is the Greek word ethnos. And it is frequently used as the word that's translated Gentiles. So he became a preacher to the Gentiles among the heathen. Immediately I conferred not with flesh and blood. Where did he get his information from? He got it directly from the Lord. Wouldn't it be wonderful to sit in for just five minutes and see the Apostle Paul as a young convert, Saul, just recently saved on the road to Damascus. And he's got Old Testament scriptures because that's, that's about all that there was at this time. And he's going through the scriptures, which he knew academically. But this time he's going through the scriptures as a believer in Jesus Christ. And he's going, oh, that's what Isaiah was talking about. 
Ah, that's what it means, what, what Moses is writing about in the Pentateuch. He's going through the scriptures and now he's seeing it differently. The only thing I know that I can compare with that, we have the testimony, the tract of a preacher who preached for a number of years but was not actually saved until he, he got around a bunch of wild-eyed, fundamental, independent Baptists like us. And he got saved. And he said, you know, even though he had been to Bible college and to seminary, he got saved. And he, he, then he got a real call. And he went back to study the scriptures and it was different. Before it was an academic exercise. And now it was like a love letter. It was God speaking to him. And when you get alone with the Lord, just like Saul who became Paul, got alone with the Lord. Do you have that kind of sense that the Lord Jesus is talking right to you. It's as if you're the only one. And He's saying it to you. He's saying it to your heart. My wife shared a wonderful thing. She's, she's got some sleep issues, and it's not because of me. But she's got some sleep issues because of her disorder, her disease. And when she's up in the night, she'll read the Scriptures. And she came across something that was written by a famous preacher, and she shared it with me. And she, she had it laying there on the table where I come in in the morning and in order to get my eyes open, she gets some coffee for me and we have some time talking there. And, and she had it sitting right there today. She says, I don't know if this will be of any help, but it was a blessing to me. And I read it and I said, that's exactly it. Not only did I get a couple of, of very clear things from what was written there, but the Lord gave me six brand new things. It just got me, got the juices flowing. Now the only way that happens, it doesn't happen because I've got a certain educational level or a certain IQ or certain experience, number of years. The only way that happens is because you have a close relationship with the Lord. And if I had been a child or a young man or a young adult, God still would have said things to my heart through the scriptures. And when you get alone with him, it's the same thing that Saul had happened when he had met the Lord Jesus. And he opened up those scriptures anew and afresh. And he said, I conferred not with flesh and blood. I can say this morning, I didn't confer with flesh and blood, but the Lord and I had a good time talking about those things that were shared with me. Would you bow your head and close your eyes, please? Every head bowed, every eye closed. And how many of you tonight would say, Preacher, God spoke to me out of the message tonight. Come on, slip your hand up. God spoke to me. Amen, amen. Maybe tonight He's saying to you, I want you to get in the Word. Maybe He's saying to you tonight, I want you to yield your life and allow my Spirit to be seen out of your life so Jesus will be seen. Maybe He's speaking to you about some other area of your life. Maybe He's encouraging you because you've been attacked and people have said, oh, uh, they're not the real thing. Uh, that, that gospel's too simple. Maybe you've been tempted to give up on witnessing. I don't know what it is, but whatever it is, maybe God wants you to pray about it. And we'll give you an opportunity in just a moment to come on down and have a word of prayer. If you don't know Jesus Christ as your Savior, the Bible says, For whosoever shall call upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. 
And we're going to give you right now a very simple, sample prayer. Would you pray from your heart, Dear God, I admit that I'm a sinner. I deserve to pay for my sins. I believe Jesus died to save me. Right now, I receive the Lord Jesus Christ into my heart as my personal Savior. Please take away my sins and take me to heaven when I die. Now, if you prayed that prayer and meant it, would you slip your hand up, anyone at all? Let's stand to our feet with heads bowed and eyes closed. Take your burgundy book. Let's sing a verse of 